So this morning we're talking on circles greater than rows and how you and I are called to live beyond the building, right? That, that when we say we gather as church, we're not talking about the community center just here in, in Cedro Woolley, but that you and I are the church and that we're actually called to be active in our faith, not just showing up and sitting down, right? If, if all you did as a believer was show up and we make you stand up and sit down and sit, sit up and sit down and, and everything, that'd be a little bit boring. And that there's actually more to our Christian walk. And James talks about this in James chapter two. So if you have a Bible, turn to James chapter two. I'm just gonna highlight a couple of verses in this passage that'll be up on the screen because I'm gonna jump a little bit. But James starts talking about how those without an active faith actually have what he called dead faith. That those who were followers of Christ were active in their faith. Now, if you don't know anything about James, and James is the book right past Hebrew, and if you went to Revelation, you've gone too far, okay? So James is that book right after Hebrew, and James was the half-brother of Jesus and one of the disciples. And so you can imagine this brother, right? This is Jesus's brother writing to the church in Jerusalem, giving them instructions on how to live out their lives as believers in active faith. And so here's the thing that's really crazy is that the believers in Jerusalem, as, as James is writing, he's writing to them with the belief that they've already heard the gospel, they understand the gospel, and they need to remember to live out the gospel. And so he goes to write to them, and, and later in James's life, in the end of his life, he's brought to the top of a temple and told to deny Jesus, that he's not the Messiah. Could you imagine doing this with your brother? Someone saying, I want you to say not just that this is not your brother. So, so for James, it was two. It was, we want you to say that he's not the Messiah. And he's also got the brotherly heart there. I mean, if someone says, I want you to deny your brother. So they're standing up there saying, we want you to deny your brother who is the true Messiah. And he says, no, I can't. So they throw him over the temple, off down probably a few hundred feet. He breaks his legs and while still alive, they go down to look at him and go, deny your brother. And he's like, I can't. And so they beat him with clubs. And that's how James dies. And so this book that he begins to write, as he writes and we read it this morning, this is a dude that was serious. This was a dude that was absolutely intentional about what he wrote. And he doesn't really put it into a cookie cutter message. He doesn't really put it into a sugar-coated concept. He is clearly saying, listen, the faith that you have is to be active. And so in James Chapter two, I'm gonna highlight a couple of these verses. In verse 14, James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. He's not just saying it's, it's lazy, it's, it's kind of inactive. He's saying dead, like that's the extreme. It is without life. 
In verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so in these three verses, James talks about dead faith three times. And as I was thinking about this passage and looking at James, I was thinking of the concept of someone walking around that's considered dead in their faith. And I thought of zombie, right? Super Hollywood on this. But I thought of this, this person, you know, walking around with the appearance of life, but really is dead. And so I looked up the definition of zombie. This is a total nerd moment. But zombie is actually, a, a zombie is defined as a non-living creature without a soul that appears to look alive from afar. But the closer you get, you begin to realize it's dead. And to some extent, harmful, if you've seen the movies. And so we see that as James is talking about this, there is a very big difference between dead faith and active faith. And I want to give you some examples. The difference between dead faith and active faith is that dead faith has the appearance of Christianity. It looks really good on the outside. Maybe it means wearing the right t-shirts, having the cool bumper stickers. You got the Jesus fish on there. It's eating the little Darwin. We're winning, you know, and it has the appearance of Christianity. They, you know, they, they understand the terminology, but don't really live out what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so some of the examples of, of dead faith is someone whose belief is personal, not to be shared. Someone who just says, I believe what I believe, I know what I know, but I'm not gonna spend time talking with people about that. And, and what I believe is very personal. It's my belief. It's not to be altered. It's not to be talked about. It is what I believe, and that's that. Someone with dead faith is also someone that just goes to, to group and church when it's convenient. Someone that just goes out of convenience and someone who's like, I, I like this whole church concept. This kind of seems fun, so I'll attend from time to time, right? Some of them attend in the more holiday kind of seasons. You've got the Christmas and Easter people, and so we call those Keister Christians, right? You know, <laughs> Christmas and Easter, Keister, you get it. For someone who has dead faith, maybe it's they're focused on saying and doing all the right things. This is their focus. So they're trying to have this active faith, thinking, man, if I do all the right things, if I say all the right things, if I align perfectly with that other Christian person that I wish I was like, then maybe I'll be able to have a more fulfilled Christian life. And so they're, they're thinking, man, if I just say the right things, do the right things. And for some, those with having dead faith would be someone who parties on Friday and worships on Sunday. There's an absolute contradiction between what their life looks like when they walk in the door here and when they leave after church. And so those are some examples of dead faith. Some examples of active faith would, would really be someone who is in pursuit of Christ and his church. And so here's what I think active faith really looks like. When we get down to the heart of it, is active faith is really defined by someone who seeks Jesus behind closed doors. Someone who seeks Jesus behind closed doors. Not just when it, when it is publicly relevant, not just when the notification pops on your phone that you haven't read that devotional in four weeks and you should get back on the wagon, you know? But that someone who seeks Jesus behind closed doors. Someone with active faith is also someone who is choosing Christ over their own comfort. All right, we can all agree that that's a little bit difficult. An active faith is someone who is actively serving the church. 
And remember, when I say serving the church, I don't mean you're on the rotation of set up, tear down, although that is an incredible area to serve, but also serving the body of Christ. Serving to the extent of being active in the body of Christ. And active faith is shown with someone who is a disciple maker. And we'll go back to that term a little bit later. But active faith and dead faith are two very different ideas. And James calls them out that you cannot have these two together and think they're the same. And active faith and dead faith are completely different. And the differences in these, as, you, as we've looked, are huge. Because faith that isn't actively following Jesus is actually something other than faith. Faith that isn't actively following Jesus is something other than faith. Back in, uh, back in 2013, March, so earlier last year, um, I was a part of a group where we were writing blog posts to share with, with young adults and just some things that, that whether it was uh, stuff from our devotional time, conversations, we were just kind of maintaining this blog for a group of young adults. And one of the blog posts that I wrote was titled, Four Reasons You Won't Get Involved little catchy idea and gain some interest. And so the four things that I talked about, the four reasons were, one, past hurt, fatigue, you're too tired to keep up with all the things that the church needs for you to do. You're already disconnected and isolated, so the idea of meeting new people, being in more relationships and doing more is just tiring. And then at the end I wrote about the fact that people also don't get involved because they view it as unnecessary. They view it as absolutely unnecessary. And so I was telling this story in this post about a time where a friend and I were sitting in a church service and I leaned over to him, not a pastoral thing to do, so ignore this story later on, but but leaned over to him and pointed out what I believed that the the leadership was gonna do next in the service. And, and just an observation, because it seemed like something like a very genuine approach to the service, but it seemed to, to me that there was a very fake decision-making of like, oh, we're just going to do this led by the spirit moment. And that's exactly what they did. They just kept doing things that were very predictable. And so out of that, one of the things I talked about in this post and what I talked with my friend about was, we are so predictable, We come in during a certain time, we sit in our certain spot, we talk to our certain people, and we make sure that we like the same certain things. And out of this, we see that very typically in the church, we're predictable. But here's here's my question for us to think about a little bit. What if we weren't predictable? And I'm not trying to think on, let's get crazy, you know, Start tearing up your jeans and look like a hipster. I'm not, I'm not trying to freak you out, but really think on this term for a second. What if we weren't predictable? Because as we look in the book of Acts, we see the church come alive. Like just expand beyond comprehension. Outsiders think people are getting drunk. They think that they're just this, this radical group that's doing something really dumb that will eventually phase out, and it doesn't. It just keeps growing, and it becomes alive. And not in the building, but in the individuals. And so they gather together, and the church, as they're showing up, they have this expectation that God is going to move through the Holy Spirit. 
So what if we weren't predictable? What if we thought this way, that we had this understanding that, that in our community, our culture, and in our service wasn't about being predictable, but it was about listening to the Holy Spirit? Here's what I think. We would have no idea what church would be like, right? We would have no idea. I mean, could you imagine that someone then asks you, hey, what's going on this weekend? What's, what, what's the worship team doing? What's the pastor preaching? Where, where are you gathering? What are you doing? Could you imagine just having no idea but this intoxicating excitement towards that person, person for what God was going to do through the work of the Holy Spirit? Now, I know that may sound a, a little bit crazy, a little bit, a little bit different, but I believe that's where we would go from the idea that church is unnecessary to church is unstoppable. It doesn't mean that we need to stop meeting here in this building. We need to change the, change the chairs and you need to rethink what, what time you come to service. But, but I believe that what it would do is get us away from the thinking that church is unnecessary to looking at how the building, the program, and the people can become unstoppable. And so as I wrote this, this actually sent me into a season of asking some questions and searching for some answers throughout scripture. Because again, you know, I started in Christ the King when I was 14 years old. I'm 26 now, started when I was 14 and came on staff at 17. And so at a 17-year-old's mind, and at 19, I went to my first conference, I come back and I believed that everything was about flashy program. I believed that everything was about this morning. Now, I believe this morning is important. But there were a lot of things I really started learning that were unnecessary. That there were more important things to focus on. And I realized that that we could go from unnecessary to unstoppable as I read scripture. And so as I started asking myself a couple questions, I want to share with you these questions that I began to ask myself that absolutely reshaped some of my thinking. And the first question I want to ask you, just for you to think on, is do I want to be like Jesus? Now, it is incredibly easy in this moment to go, yes, pastor, let's get on this. Let's wear the t-shirt. Let's get all serious about it. Let's go out. I want to be like Jesus. But slow down for a minute, okay? Slow down for a minute and just think through that question. Do I want to be like Jesus? Because often in our church, we have two different groups, those thriving to be like Jesus and those thriving to identify with Jesus. And those are not the same things. And so identifying with Jesus is not being like Jesus. We can talk day after day after day, week after week about keeping Jesus the main thing. It's all about Jesus. But unless you live like Jesus when you leave this building, then it's not all about Jesus. So think on that question for a minute. Do I want to be like Jesus? And as we think on that question, I've got three for you to, for you to write down. And the first one is, is it possible some of us aren't growing in the likeness of Jesus because we actually don't want to be like Jesus? Is it possible that we aren't growing in the likeness of Jesus because we actually don't want to be like Jesus? And here's what I mean. When you read through the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the very beginning of the New Testament, we see a lot of really cool things about Jesus. 
We see some really, really exciting things that he was bold, he knew scripture, he was courageous, he had an amazing prayer life that he set very clear boundaries around. He had many followers, which seemed very appealing. He had great impact, he had an incredible attitude, even when people didn't like him, and he performed miracles. Who wouldn't want to be like this guy? And so we all look at this, this portion of the New Testament in the four gospels, and we go, absolutely, I want to be like Jesus. I want to grow in the likeness of Jesus. But then as we read a little bit more in those four gospels, we see that there's a lot of things that we probably don't want. The cost of life that Jesus endured for us and, and challenges and encourages many people to come and, and die to themselves. The interactions he had with sinners and rejects. I mean, from, from tax collectors to hookers to Pharisees, these are the people Jesus begins to hang around. And he has interactions with the, with the Pharisees even where, where they're absolutely arguing every step of the way, everything he does and everything he says. And then we see that Jesus is also homeless. He says the son of man has no place to lay his head. And he didn't come to build his kingdom here but to build into us. And so these are all the things that we see in the New Testament where we respond and go, man, I want to be like Jesus. But then we really take a hard look at scripture and go, wait a minute, I'm not sure about that. And so this is the question I ask myself. Is it, is it possible that some of us aren't growing in the likeness of Jesus because we actually don't wanna be like Jesus? That we're interested in, in the really cool things that Jesus is about, but we're not interested in the things that would radically change our life. Because we're very interested in, in, in Jesus being a part of our life, but it's a whole different ballpark for Jesus to invade your life. And that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to invade your life. And we see this throughout scripture. And so as we asked this question, the other question I began to ask myself was, do I want to care for broken people, awkward people, and unpopular people? And for, for you, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe popular people are in there for you. But, but ask that question, do I want to care for broken people, awkward people, and unpopular people? After Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, he's sitting with this group of people in his home. And while sitting with them and with these sinners and these fishermen and these tax collectors, Jesus says this in Luke 5. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. And so Jesus is not sitting with these people who get it. He's sitting with the people who don't get it, investing in time. He's sitting with the broken people. He's sitting with the awkward people and he's sitting with the unpopular people. And so if, if that's you and you're like, man, I wanna help the sick. I wanna sit with the broken people, awkward people and unpopular people, then, then just think of this for a moment. If it is you, then why are you sitting in circles full of righteous people? Just think about that for a minute. If we're, if we're called and we wanna to respond to, 
to reaching and caring for broken people, awkward people, and unpopular people, why are we always sitting around righteous people? The people that Jesus says, I'm not here in this moment to spend these, this time with the righteous people. And I think we need to ask that question to start examining our time and looking at if we want to be like Jesus, to grow in the likeness of Jesus. We need to sit around these circles and be with these people. And the third question I began to ask myself was, do I want to say no to what is holding me back and yes to what will move me forward as a disciple? Do I want to say no to what is holding me back and yes to what will move me forward as a disciple? And for you, that could mean anything. Maybe that could mean failure. Maybe that could mean financial stress. Maybe that could mean pressures of non-believing family. Maybe that's insecurities. Maybe it's even yourself. What is holding you back from moving forward as a disciple? And we see this in scripture, that coming to church and then going out and doing nothing doesn't work. We see this in, in Luke 18. The rich young ruler, right? He goes up to Jesus and he's, he's explaining all that he's done. He's kept everything in track. I've got it all together. Luke 18, he begins to explain, I've got it. What do I need to do? And Jesus says, you still lack this. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the rich young ruler is just standing there. I mean, could you imagine a young person making lots of money, a rich person just standing there and Jesus tells them, give it all away. All that you've worked for, I want you to give up. I would imagine he's speechless. Just standing there going, I, I, I can't do it. I want to, but I can't. And Jesus then explains to his disciples, he turns to him and says, listen, it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And he's exp explaining it's impossible without God. That is impossible without God. And then we turn over to the next chapter because this is where we see that uh, it's not impossible for our God. And I'm gonna read this to you because I just love this passage in Luke 19. If you have a Bible, we'll... Uh, We'll just read these first 10 verses where we meet a guy, a little guy named Zacchaeus. Now I'm a short, stubby Norwegian. And so when I read about short guys that got to meet with Jesus in the Bible, I get stoked. So, because I relate, right? So I just, you know, I remember being around taller people, you know, larger people and getting hidden in the crowd. And this is where we meet Zacchaeus. He's a dude that no one's paying attention to. He's hidden in the crowd. And in Luke 19, verse one, it says, he entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So we see that not only is he a tax collector, but it's pointed out that this dude's rich. So what do we know from verse 18 about rich people? It's near impossible for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's super impossible. So this is the disciples thinking, going into it from what Jesus says. And in verse three, it says, and when he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know there's lots of, lots of songs about Zacchaeus, that he was little, he grew up in the sycamore tree. You guys remember that, that song? 
I'm sorry. Um, I just remember that. That just sticks in my head. I can never read Luke 19 without that song. And in verse five, it says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, he addresses Zacchaeus. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. They were irritated. They didn't want to meet with this guy who was broken, awkward, and unpopular. He has gone into, the, he has gone into be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, listen to this, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I don't know about you, but that story gets me incredibly excited because I realize that's exactly where Jesus has called us, to be with the short little awkward guy, to be with the person that no one else is acknowledging, to be with the broken person and the unpopular person, to reach out to them because what we view as impossible, God views as possible. So what's holding you back from choosing to be a disciple. And here's the thing about these questions. It is really easy for us to ponder these questions, but think about how much more difficult it may be for you in this moment to then go out and respond with the way you live tomorrow. And so as we look at these couple questions and we wrap up this morning, I just want you to think on these questions, not just to ponder them for today, but what would that look like if you were to actively pursue growing in the likeness of Jesus? For you to be intentional around broken, awkward, and unpopular people. And to say no to what is holding you back so that you can move forward as a disciple. But maybe for you, you're, you're kind of a planner, you're an overthinker, you're a, you're, you're a schedule-minded person, and you're going, okay, but where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? If, if, we, if we understand that, that in so many ways the church, is, the, the church is acting unnecessary, but we can be unstoppable, we see that in scripture, where do we go from here? And if you're taking notes, write this down. We identify that circles are greater than rows. Circles are greater than rows. On the back of your program, there's a, there's a piece about our church, it's a little bit dark and a little bit hard to read, but it basically describes the fact that our church desires to be on mission through small groups. And when we talk about circles being greater than rows, we talk about small groups being greater than this. Not, not one without the other, but circles being very, very important. And Greg Greshkel, Greshel, however you would say his name, the pastor of Life Church once said, and I was listening to him in a conference, and he once said, what you value determines what you will do. What you value determines what you will do. So here's the interesting thing. For years, I said groups were the most important part of our ministry 
and our church. Remember, I was, I was a staff kid from age 17 to today with, with a couple years break within the Christ the King Network. But I've been around long enough to, to start talking with that language. Small groups are plan A. It's the most important. If you're not in a small group, you're not in community. And that's what I was saying time after time when what I really valued was program. Rose. I talked about how important they were. I, I believed that they were important. But what I viewed as more important, what I valued, determined that I focused more on program, not people. And then I started reading scripture more and more, looking for the intention of us being in groups, being in these circles. And I started finding scriptures that just clarified this. Like in Acts 2, when the church begins with with their birth. In, In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together, so gathering together in a corporate setting like this, and breaking bread in their homes. So they're not only gathering here, but they are gathering intentionally together in homes. And in Hebrews 10, 24 through 24 and 25, you've probably heard this verse before. And it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, that active faith, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another. And so we identify that circles are greater than rows, that program These rows is not the point. It's only part of the point, the bigger picture. And here's here's what I believe is really important for us to understand. I I really believe the reason why some of us who show up here on a Sunday and, and, and we feel like we're not getting from the teaching what we're really hoping to, we're not getting from the worship time what we wished it could be, and we're not getting out of the relationships what we, what we really desire to get out of the relationships, and we're feeling like we're missing a part of community. If you show up on a Sunday morning and you're feeling like you're missing a part of community, can I just tell you it's because this isn't community. This isn't community. This is connection. Groups are community. For us to be able to build into each other's lives, to invest in one another. And here's what I find so funny as we look at being in small groups is that pastors always want bigger groups and teachers always want smaller classrooms. That is the funniest thing to me. So teachers want smaller classrooms to invest well, to train up students and pastors are like, man, give me a bigger church. I want more people. I want, I want more Christians in the, in the room together. And we see this difference. So circles, groups are community, the whole part, an important part. And for you and I this morning, it begins with becoming disciples. It begins with discipleship. Because at the end of of Jesus' ministry, in his time with his disciples, he leaves them with the Great Commission. You guys have heard of the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, verse, verse 16 through 20. And what we see from that is that we are called to go make disciples that go make disciples. And and that doesn't mean a program, that doesn't mean a class. 
That doesn't mean next week I'm gonna get up and say, hey, if you wanna be a disciple, if you want to disciple someone, we're gonna go through a 12-week series in a group where you're gonna fill in a lot of blanks and learn a lot of terms. Discipleship begins today. And it begins with you growing in the likeness of Jesus. Responding to reach broken people, awkward people, and unpopular people, and teaching others to do the same. To grow in those things and teach others to do the same. Reverend Dr. Michael Palkey, takes a moment for me to say that name. It's got a lot of titles, but in his book, Discipleship, A Catalyst for Transformation, he says this, that I think is so incredibly clear about the heart of a disciple that that then is focused on making disciples. He says this, a discipleship relationship is formed when people engage in regular face-to-face interactions in which participants identify the next steps in their walk with God, cheer others on, invite accountability into their next steps, and pray for each other so that they become mature, multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ. And so as we identify that circles are greater than rows, it doesn't mean that next week we're not gonna all show up here, but it means what we are going to do is focus on small groups being the main thing. That we look at how our groups can build into one another, grow together. And even this model is biblical of discipleship in small groups. Paul tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the gospel, entrust to faithful men. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Entrust it to faithful men. And men, this morning, we gather in church and there are so many different ways that we view how to do church. I mean, if I, if I paid you $10, you wouldn't raise your hands during worship. You know, there's, there's just so many different ways that we see the way to go about our walk, but it's a whole different thing to align our lives with Jesus and invite someone into that process. And so as Paul tells Timothy to entrust this gospel to faithful men, I believe that that is our call as the church for both men and women to become disciple makers, to be active in our faith and to be in groups. And this is where I really believe for you and I, this is where the building, the the program and the people go from unnecessary to unstoppable. Let's pray.